0: Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today I welcome Tim McLaughlin to the podcast. Tim is a general partner at Co-Founders Capital. They're a venture capital firm that invests only in early stage B2B startups. They have raised over $40 million, 43 to be exact, with their first two funds and are on to their third. Tim's experience reviewing, interviewing, and ultimately investing in B2B startups provided great insights for our conversation today. We not only discuss what they are looking for in early stage founders, but Tim also shares is perspective on why different startups fail and which ones ultimately succeed. This is a must listen for early stage founders and folks thinking about starting a B2B business. Enjoy and now on to the interview. (music) Good morning, Tim. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me, Brett.
0: Uh, It's my pleasure to have you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You are my first official venture capital guest of any sort, so I'm I'm anxious to get into that. But before we do, maybe you could give us just a little bit about your background in the firm and, and who you guys are working with.
1: Yeah, sure. So just a little about me first. I live in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. So we're a North Carolina focused fund. My wife and my three and a half year old and my one month old are, you know, working from home mostly these days. So we've been kind of in the house together, but that's a little bit about me. I grew up in North Carolina, went to Harvard undergrad, played a little hockey there. And then I uh, opened and, and ran a hockey training company, a services based company which made me want to get out of services based companies <laughs> pretty quickly for seven years after graduation. And that was, you know, 2008, 2015, kind of scaled out programs across the country. And I went back to business school at UNC, Kenan Flagler. I got my MBA there. And that's where I got heavily involved in the venture capital and uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem here in North Carolina. Met my partner at the fund, David Gardner, who is a seriously really successful software entrepreneur. He had just raised a fund in 2015, which was a $12 million fund focused on B2B software companies, seed stage revenue, pre-revenue or just at revenue companies uh, in North Carolina. And so I joined him a few months after he raised uh, the first fund in 2015. So I did not take part in raising that fund, but we invested out of that for three years, still have 10 active companies, 10 to 12, 12 active companies in that fund. And we are currently investing out of our second fund, which we raised in 2018, which is a $31 million fund, still focused on seed stage B2B software companies in North Carolina primarily. Although we will invest out of the state, we're opportunistic, but that's kind of our fund thesis.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I love the idea of this service company. I get it, The margins are there, but man, you got to work work <laughs> hard and it's hard it's, to do just-
1: you're on you're on a treadmill and if you ever get off the treadmill it's, it all stops so i just the scalability of software was very appealing to me
0: yeah and the other thing that's always remarkable and if we share a little bit offline is you know the amount of mess- investment you've made just in north carolina right so if people think about where, where can i start a company it's got to be silicon valley and no and right the, the triangle area there and maybe just for the audience the triangle comprises of which universities again
1: yeah, so we're very active at University of North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, Duke and NC State are the, are the ones where we spend the majority of our time. But we've been spending a lot of time, uh, some more time, you know, Davidson and Elon are both close by uh, Asheville and Charlotte. You know, we, we can get there pretty quickly. So we're very active at the, in the university ecosystem here.
0: Got it, got it, got it. And I think the audience is already probably aware why I'm excited to have you on the show when you've mentioned the B2B and then investment into that that space. And just kind of curious. I know you joined a little bit later and you may have, you know, previewed the answer. Why, why B2B? You know, what what drew you guys into this space? And obviously if you've gone for a second fun and you know, third one on the way, what was the draw for you guys?
1: Well, our our pitch to our not only our LPs and invest in our fund, but to our portfolio companies is that we're going to be value-added investors. Most investors you're going to talk to are going to make the pitch that they're value-added investors. We like to joke that we actually mean it. and Not to upset any other VCs that are listening, because I'm sure they all add value, but when, when we my partner David Gardner started and sold six consecutive b2B software companies um, between you know 10 and 100 million dollars but all, all good exits for his investors. And so that's where his expertise was. I learned a lot from him coming into the B2B space. I didn't have that background. I had entrepreneurial experience but not the B2B experience. Uh, so I kind of I learned on the fly with my advisors and my partners and and as we grew the fund and, and our portfolio companies, you know, helped me through that too. So that's kind of where I've gained some expertise. But when you're investing in a company, looking at B2B software companies, the entrepreneur wants to know that you've been in that, their shoes before. You've understood, you've felt their pain, and you know, some of the challenges that they're going through and you can speak with real credibility from the other side, from the investor side of the table to your entrepreneurs. And so I think, you know, that that was one for our LPs that were investing in us. They wanted to know that our team has been there and done that, but so do the companies. And so that's kind of focused on what you know.
0: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And the perfect segue into my, my next question is, you know, what are some of the decision factors or what are you looking for in these early stage B2B companies to make that investment? Because as you mentioned, some, most of them are, post revenue right they've got a little bit of revenue or maybe just explain really what is your thought process and
1: decision criteria so it's kind of 50-50 50% of our companies are true pre revenue when we when we invest maybe they have a little bit of a technology uh, that they built they got a you know mvp or they got a prototype or they got something the other half you know have have a little bit of revenue have a beta customer something like that the first criteria is always the the team right so uh, we like entrepreneurs that are articulate. We like entrepreneurs that can explain their value props, their customers very quickly. We like to say that if we're two minutes into a pitch or on slide five of a deck, and we have no idea what the company does, we're probably not gonna invest. So so that's kind of a starting point. And then another thing that we really look for is demonstrable ROI. We like solutions that are better, faster, cheaper, where we can sell one customer do a case study, do a white paper, and then we can take that out and sell it to, over and over again to reasonable business people. So if we can get that case study and there's demonstrable ROI, that's something that's great up our alley. We're kind of industry agnostic, so healthcare IT, HR tech, fintech, kind of across the board, but demonstrable ROI is present in all of our investments.
0: No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I'm just curious, you know, because from some of my Work. I won't necessarily avoid, you know, uh, financial services or healthcare, but with some of the regulatory issues, it just adds a different level of complexity. So you guys are, I don't say okay. You see the if you see the opportunity, the de- demonstrable ROI, then you're good with that. Or have you seen some challenges with?
1: Yeah. So here's kind of our secret sauce kind of, of what we do when you're investing in companies this early, there's not a lot of diligence that you can do on the financials. There's not a lot of, you know, well, what you can do is you can go and test the value props with potential customers and you can start to get a feel for what the regulatory hurdles are going to be or what the objections are going to be. So we actually go with founders, to try to sell their products. We talk to potential customers. We talk to customers that have passed. We, we try to understand before we invest, you know, the key variables in the financial models that are driving those businesses. So what is the sales cycle going to look like? What is the price point going to look like? What is the real ROI for the customer? And, and to your question, you know, one of the things with, with sales cycle might be that regulatory hurdle, right? What are the check marks do, that you need to see from this company, Security, you know, what level of security do you need? What level, you know, HIPAA compliant solutions, all that stuff to be able to sell. And that gives us a sense of what that, those hurdles are going to be. So we know how much money to put into the company. Okay. Now that makes a lot
0: of sense. And I guess that's a good, because one of the things, you know, I work with obviously a lot of the B2B and the startups at different stages, not all tech kind of talk about a fundamental growth checklist, if you will, right? There's, here's the things that you should be, and it almost sounds like you're partnering with these companies to help them build those checklists out. Are there certain, you know, four or five key things that you want to see every one of these companies, obviously the ROI, but is there anything else in particular that you're, you guys are heavily focused on in those early stages?
1: Yeah. So I'd say it's traits around the founding team or the entrepreneurs. So coachability, right. Are they, are they willing to take advice and feedback and incorporate it? One one thing that we say is, you know, we give some advice and feedback on, you know, maybe try this a little differently in your next pitch or maybe change this wording in your deck and just see how it goes. Are they open to that feedback? Because that's going to, you know, not, not that the VCs are always right, but you know, they should take advice and think about it and, you know, maybe incorporate it. And you can tell a lot of that early on. Where we invest, it's really important that the entrepreneurs aren't stuck. They don't get entrenched on an idea or a belief that they had going in, right? So what's their ability to, you know, pivot might not be the right word because that might be a little too strong, but to adjust their value props, for example. A lot of times they'll go in with with a pitch and talking to customers and the customer can say, well, we really don't care about that. Here is what we care about well, how willing is that entrepreneur to, to adapt, right? The way they think about that customer, the value props, the market. So that's really that's really important to us.
0: I love that. Adapter and evolve, right? I think right? Cause I throw pivot out quite a bit too. But, yeah, um,
1: adapter, yeah. evolve, more so than pivot. And then the, the last thing I would say is we like to see a flurry of activity. So one thing, for example, is we'll, we'll an entrepreneur will come in and pitch to us. We'll really like an idea and we'll say, hey, let's set up five, sales calls. Let's go on, let's do five demos. Let's shoot with some live ammo. Let's see what the results are and the feedback is. And if it takes months to set up those five calls or demos, that's a huge red flag. Because as an entrepreneur, you have to have so much activity. My partner, David says, a bird a bird that flaps its wings once a day will never get off the ground, right? Being an entrepreneur is this, this flurry of flapping your wings and, and making mistakes. But Doing it as many times as possible, so you can really hone in as quickly as possible on on what will scale.
0: Yeah, and that that makes a lot of sense because if they can't even get traction with you know friendly fire or right friends of the program or your network, it's going to be really hard to get it to an unknown network. So that that makes a lot of sense. And just one more question along those lines: Are you typical first-time founders? Or are you looking for this is their second or third company, or is it really? more about the person and the team and the idea? Where where do you guys fit on that? Yeah,
1: no, it's, that's that's a really good question because we certainly know several funds that are very successful, but they focus on, you know, serially successful entrepreneurs, right? Repeat founders that want to come in. That's not us. Not that we're going to walk away from a repeat founder, but we can't add as much value to that person that's been there and done it as we can do a first-time entrepreneur. We're very upfront about that too, which is, hey, we would love to partner with you, but we not, might not be the right investor because our strategy isn't to pay, pay a premium on repeat founders. Our strategy is to help first-time founders with what they don't know, right? To to kind of give them the edge that a serially successful entrepreneur has, and just work very, very closely with them so that you know they don't make that catastrophic mistake, right? Or they pick up the phone and they call us when they have that one really important decision or that one term in a deal that could be a a killer a poison pill for the company we want to be there to help walk them through that and so we're a rare fund i think that says that we're we partner more with first-time founders probably but that's just part of our strategy right
0: yeah no it makes makes a lot of sense and two my guess is i haven't worked with a ton of different serial entrepreneurs and founders but they may not be as receptive to feedback right after being through the washing machine a couple of times. Right.
1: And to be fair, when we have the conversation early with, early with them, we say, Hey, listen, you've been there, done that. You can charge a premium for the experience you have. And by charging, I mean, you know, valuation of your company right out of the gate. And so if you want a passive investor, that's willing to pay more, maybe that's the right decision for your company. You own more of the company, you get money. You don't have somebody breathing down your neck or, as much governance, maybe as as we would have, and so if that's what you're looking for, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, but you know, for the first time founders, I think often they underestimate the value that someone that's an investor, like co-founders or someone else that's been there, done that, right, has a portfolio that they work very closely with, uh, can provide.
0: Yeah, make makes sense, and based on that, so now you got a number of folks. Funnel. Now you've got people that you've invested in. You know, let's kind of talk about coming out the the, the firms and the companies and the products that succeed and, and the ones that that don't. Maybe I don't know if you want to start negative first or go positive, but you know, what are some of the characteristics? Let's go successful, and we can talk about maybe some of the things that didn't work for companies. So, you know, what are some of the the top three or four things that?
1: Yeah, let's keep it positive. So I'll keep it positive, and then the companies maybe that. That aren't doing as well. You, could, you can imagine they're on the other side of the spectrum of everything I'm saying. So, the companies that are successful, a few traits. One, they hone in the, the variance of their assumptions that drive their model. Okay, stay with me here. The variance of their assumptions that drive their model start to go to zero, they never get to zero. But when you make an investment in an early stage company, half your assumptions are probably wrong, but you don't know which half. The key is tracking those from a month to month basis and honing in those assumptions. So you get more and more accurate. What assumptions are we talking about? We might be talking about the number of demos an average salesperson might be able to set up a month, take it a step further down the funnel. How many of those deal, how many of those demos are going to go to contract negotiations? How many of those are going to go to close? Well, if you are honing those on a month to month basis, it doesn't really matter how far off you are at the beginning. It matters that you're getting better and better at predicting it. And it's gonna tell you a couple of things. It's gonna tell you one, whether or not you have a business or you need to make that pivot. Two, it's gonna tell you much more accurately how much capital you need and where that capital is gonna get you. And if you're able to take that process to a next round investor and say, hey, we were way off at the beginning. Here's why we missed plan. But look at the last three or four months, how consistent we've been with these metrics as we've honed them. Well then it's more of a crystal ball than this financial forecast. It's we've proven this out over time. We've been tracking it. Here's where it's at. So the companies that have been successful really pay attention to those assumptions and tweak them month on a monthly basis. Another thing that we encourage our our Founders to do is have a regular cadence with their investors and advisors. The ones that are saying, you know, every two weeks or every month, I'm giving an update of the true, the good, bad, and the ugly, along with an ask, are the ones that do the best because they're not just reaching out when they need money or when things are going really, really bad. So it's all about having a regular cadence and asking for help because. At the end of the day, if you ask for help every month and someone hasn't responded and given you any of that help, it's really hard for them at the end to blame you, right? Or it's harder. (laughs) I guess they still will, but it's harder. So those are two things that I'd say, you know, I I have been traits, like very actionable traits that founders can do that separate our good and uh, not as good companies.
0: And and if you looked at some of those metrics, I'm a big believer in, in metrics. So I'm so happy to hear that, you know, and that you mentioned kind of the sales process, which is critical at the early stage and looking at it. So is there a few key ones like conversion? Is it average deal size? I mean, those are probably some of the more obvious, but is there other maybe even operating metrics you're starting to look at as well as the financial as they're starting to mature a little bit?
1: Yeah, so the number one metric that if you go and tweak your financial model that you see is the killer is sales cycle. If you look at your price point or your average customer size, you can kind of you're not going to be way off on on what that is. Maybe 10 you want to charge $10 per unit per month, but you find that the real market is $8 per unit per month. Well, that's not going to blow up your financial model. Maybe your customer size is you're shooting for a 1,000 employee kind of companies, but you're really honing in on 750 or 800. Again, not going not to be a deal killer. Go into your financial model and move your sales cycle from six months to 14 months. You run out of cash. I mean, it's the way, the way it is. So that's one of the key things that I would say that people you know, need to put a, put a focus on. And to that point, also breaking down your kind of customer segments. So if you have KPIs, sometimes it's helpful to have those KPIs with just an average, but sometimes it's helpful to have those KPIs per deal size. So I'll give you an example is just maybe with your small accounts, you have a two month sales cycle, and with your enterprise accounts, you have a 16 month sales cycle. Well, now you can really, there's no right answer which one you should be going at, but if you have those numbers right and you're tracking it based on those different customer segments you can say you know what i shouldn't be going after the enterprise i can gobble up the smaller accounts all day and look at how much more value i would get out of that if that's where we focused our efforts so that's another thing i mean it depends on what stage you're at but as you progress in your business you're going to have this aggregate model with all these aggregate kpis and then you're going to have the ability to kind of segment it out as you go along so i Just important when to make that decision. Yeah,
0: no, that makes sense. And do you even maybe take it a step further? Do you advocate that they pick a specific vertical? Because one of the things I see a lot is, you know, we can be all things to all people. We can sell (laughs) everywhere. And then when you're the founder-led selling still at that point, you can have those conversations, but you know, where do you see a you know, like I said, a focus or a niche, take one niche at a time, get good at it, and expand? Or you, have you seen success with the other way where we can, our product applies across all these different verticals? You know, we're going to go broad initially. Does that make sense?
1: So Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do the safe, right answer, which is it depends, <laughs> but, but, but here's, here's the, here's the strategy that we try to deploy, which is Going after three customer segments, maybe, or three different industries, that's okay. As long as there's a plan at the end of a certain amount of time to make a decision what you want to do at the end of that time. So let's say we're selling to enterprise, you know, mid-level and and SMB kind of for small businesses. We're, we're, we're testing with each one of those. Well, six months from now, let's come back and see where the real value is and where we need to focus our time. That doesn't mean we're unfocused at the beginning right? It means that we're testing some different strategies. And at the end, if we have those three different strategies, six months from now, we plan to shoot two in the head or one in the head and and then really attack what's been working. That is a strategy, right? That doesn't mean you're distracted. That means you're really focused on what you want to test and then what you want the outcome to be. So that's what we kind of try to deploy
0: yeah no that makes that makes a lot of sense and maybe follow-on question with well not follow-on because i'm moving away from customer settings a little bit but you know love your perspective on you know process and documentation right i know some companies that go completely over the top too early, documenting everything and workflows but then on the flip side that you know as you're starting to get traction you're getting more sales you know, none of this has been documented. And then when you want to start looking to scale, you got to, to start over. So I would love your perspective on, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly uh, and, and where you are with with those types of. Uh,
1: so when we invest, typically the CEO is the salesperson, right? The only salesperson in the company, the CEO is selling. And to be honest, if the CEO can't sell, we've ne- never seen a situation that has worked where the CEO can't sell. CEO founder can't sell their product but then someone else some salesperson is going to come in and do a much better job. If you can't get that first 1 to 5 customers on your own, you're the, you're the most knowledgeable, passionate, you, you have the most at stake, uh, if you can't sell it's going to be hard to get someone else to do it, right? So step back, so the CEO founder is normally the first salesperson of the organization and we always tell them to prepare for that handoff to that next person that, that how they're going to, you know, there's going to be that transfer of knowledge when that person comes in. So that means documenting objections that come up. That means documenting, uh, follow-ups with, with other sales folks because the founders always get in this, you know, they have all that, that knowledge. And then it may, it's such a heavy lift to transfer that over to somebody. So we always encourage them to, to start with a process that's going to scale, and uh, and it can be a lot I think up front and and maybe seem unnecessary, but when it's time to hand that off or make your first sales hire, make your first whatever hire. Same with same with technology, right? Your CTO not documenting anything, and then you need some redundancies in there. It's just such a relief when all that's been put in place up front.
0: Yeah, not chasing excitement. You know, one of the things I like to definitely with the the newer founders is look these sales calls you're going on this is going to be the you know the core of your company or at least your product right so the feedback you're getting you're going to start to understand why they're buying it from you which is ultimately when you start to build some content or marketing around it it's going to come from that and the other thing i like to encourage them to think about is you know, your onboarding process, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> but if you want to keep those customers you worked hard to get, you know, that's usually a good place to make sure. To, and again, I know every company's different, but nine out of 10, that's usually the last place these companies are, are focusing on is their post-sale customer.
1: Yep. It's, it, you know, one of the things that we've always talked about is you're onboarding your first customer, you're training them on your product, why not work with them to create a video, right? That's scalable, right? That that now you can put that on your website. Maybe it reduces some of the, the friction of the onboarding process, but it creates a roadmap and a blueprint for your your first customer success hire. That's just an example that we've seen is like, so you've onboarded eight customers now. You've done the exact same thing eight times. You don't have it recorded and you don't have it written down. Why not? How much happier would you have been if you spent twice the time onboarding that first customer by creating some, you know, scalable material than doing this eight times over? So,
0: yeah, hundred percent agree with you. And when I moved out of management consulting back into the the startup world, you know, you, they train us on level three documentations, and you can just see eyes rolling. I'm like, all right, so I've learned. <laughs> Let's just go with level one: the key tasks and activities, which which makes a lot of sense because as you grow, you can start to to formalize that i want to be respectful of your time and we're starting to run out, but I do want to kind of ask, you know, you talked about success. So after these companies are working with you through that fate, what's next for those companies? What's your ultimate, obviously you're going to follow on with some investment in certain companies. Is that, Maybe just a little bit of background on what you guys do with the successful companies.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, our our main—I mean, one of our main goals, of course, our main objective is return of capital to our investor-based RLPs. That's our fiduciary responsibility, and so that's where we focus. But also growing the entrepreneurial ecosystem in North Carolina is one of our one of our missions that we have. So it's it's not only having successful founders and outcomes and, and return of capital. But, you know, building that network and ecosystem of successful entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that tried, did everything right, but it just didn't work that are now looking to start their next business and knowing that those folks want to work with us again and are going to come back and, you know, we'd be happy to fund their next, you know, venture. And so, you know, what's next building a network of, of professionals we worked with in the in the past that we want to work with again in the future and that are embracing kind of the entrepreneurship mentality here in the state. I think that's kind of what's next. And hopefully that turns into a family of funds, you know, where Crunchbase is, again, uh, ranked as the most active investor in North Carolina. And that's been running for a while now. And I'm a little nervous because COVID has slowed us down a little bit, but we want to, not only do we want to keep that title the most active, uh, that's nice, but, you know, one of the more successful ones with outcomes and building the the ecosystem here.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. And I was going to ask you what, what really has changed? I mean, the world's changed and we've gone remote. I think it's accelerated a lot of things that we were heading towards anyway, but just curious from, you know, even maybe your, your early stage or the the companies you're just starting to engage with through the companies you're working with, have you seen massive changes or has it just been an adjustment period for you guys?
1: Yeah, the ones that took action quicker are the ones that are doing better. So there, were, everybody remembers kind of that Monday morning or maybe in your world, whatever world, it was a Tuesday morning. But when you really looked at what the impact of COVID could be on your business or businesses that you're associated with. And what that was for us is what would happen if we pushed all of our sales back six months and if we zeroed out you know, the new investment line for our portfolio companies? And it was a real eye-opening experience. And so we tasked our entrepreneurs to, to go through that exercise and to take swift action right away. What do you need to do to right-size your team? Do it all in one swift day, week, whatever it needs to be, so that you can keep morale with whoever's left on the team and ensure them that you know they're going to be here for the long haul and you right-size the ship and all that stuff. The companies that did that have been definitely more successful. Now, the other thing, there's some things that are just out of all the company's control, right? Sometimes you have a product that's going to sell better in COVID. And you didn't know that. Nobody pitched us on that, right? There were companies we were looking at investing in, hadn't. And then all of a sudden, COVID took off and said, listen, we're not raising money. for We're selling like crazy right now. We're not raising raising money for another year or two because of all the customers we are onboarding. And then other ones, you know, sales cycles got pushed back 12 months. And it's just not the fault of anybody. There is some luck involved to it. It has, I think, a little bit shifted our strategy on what types of companies we might be looking at, right? So, which makes like we, sense, and the we way you com- do
0: business a little bit too, right? Not much fewer, if any, or no in-person visits, and changing the dynamic as well.
1: And coming to a quicker decision, I think, as a as a venture fund, you know, we we have to be more selective right now with our current with our investments. So we, you know, fewer deals we're looking at at, at a given time. So quicker feedback to entrepreneurs and. Uh,
0: as to whether or not we're going to move forward, yeah, back to what you said, adapt and
1: and not pivot
0: adapt and evolve or, or die in these in some cases. So awesome. All right. Well, my last two questions for you. One is, you know what's next for you and what's next for for co-founder Capital?
1: What's next for me is hopefully getting back out into the real world with with my new growing family, personally, hopefully that's it. And we'll get back to something what it looked like before COVID sometime soon, where we can all be healthy and do that. So personally, that's what I want. Professionally with co-founders, we've done a good job, I think, not only with our first funds, first and second fund at setting ourselves up to return good capital to our LPs, but positioning ourselves in the market with a good brand, with good, strong relationships, where we're going to be able to raise Fund through a family of funds, you know, hopefully fund three, fund four. I'm very, very lucky and I know what I want to do for the next 25, 30 years of my life. I know that not everyone is that lucky. I love what I do. And in order to do that, you got to, you know, early on, you so you got to treat people the right way. You got to build those relationships so that you think about the long run, right? Co founders, capital fund seven, you know, and in, in 2040 or whatever it's going to be, like, have, have you burnt too many bridges where that's not a possibility? And hope, hopefully not.
0: And amazingly, if you guys are still only in North Carolina, even more impressive.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the strategy is going to have to change fund to fund anyway. So
0: Yeah, I gotcha. So I gotcha. All right. Then last question, and I'll let you go is what is one thing that you would highly recommend? It could be personal
1: or business related. Yeah, sure. That's, it's really important. I think I touched on this a little bit, but the way we we say it to our entrepreneurs is, you know, you're always building a, a bench, right? And it, that kind of seems self-serving when you when you say it that way. But really, what you're doing is you're always taking meetings, you're always helping people when you can, you're getting to know folks, even when there's not a direct right now objective, right? And so so Brett, you and I've talked for for several weeks now. And You know, just kind of think about maybe down the line, sometime we might be able to help each other out, right? We might be able to get in a deal together or we might be able to, you know, use your services. But there's no action on right now, but you're building that network, you're treating people the right way. What we say is we're building that bench. So when the time is right, you have those people that you can count on, you can call on you know, I think that's, uh, that's been really helpful for us. So that's, uh, that's the advice we give all of our entrepreneurs when we say, Hey, I think you should meet this person. And they say, no, I don't need that person right now. You say, that's not the point. Meet with them, get to know them, build those relationships so that when the time is right, you can, uh, you can reach out to them quickly and they'll get back to you.
0: Yeah. That's such really good advice. And it's underappreciated. I think, I mean, I learned that later in my career of the, you know, the fact of giving and networking and doing it when you don't have to. And you know, my three daughters, I give that advice all the time. One, the, the world is really small. Don't burn bridges and two network and help because karma will
1: come back at some point in, in a positive way. So. And one of the ways, one of the best ways to do it is set aside time on your calendar for those kind of meetings. Cause sometimes you're going to fill them up with everything that you know, you need to be, you know, you're thinking in the now and you're in the weeds and how do I just, survive this month or that's the entrepreneurial mentality but if i have 3 hours set aside on my calendar which is just meet with some folks right this week reach out to some folks i haven't i don't know that i would like to know with no real objective i think i think that's a good way to manage that process and make sure you're you're thinking about it
0: yeah, really good advice and a, a great way to, to end this interview. It's so much value, Tim. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And if there's folks out there that want to learn more about you or the firm, what's the the best way for them to to connect and reach out to you?
1: I'll say this. If you can't find my email and my information to get a hold of me, then uh, I don't know that that it's worth us, us chatting because my information is always out there. So Look me up on LinkedIn. Go to our website. You can, you get my email and my number, and happy to uh, happy to chat.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Again, Tim, thank you very much. We'll check in with you here in a little bit, maybe post COVID, when and if that time comes, and see <laughs> how things are changing for you guys, and and check back in. Thank so, you. Thanks for having your me. Your day. Thanks. Yeah.
1: Thanks.